Greetings and welcome to the Animal Wellness Podcast, the official podcast of Animal Wellness Action. Hi, I'm your host, Joseph Grove. On this show, we talk about animals from the perspective of people who care about them and have the ability to improve their lives by influencing culture and supporting laws and regulations. To stay up to date with all of our news and information, subscribe to this podcast, receive our free newsletters and more, visit animalwellnessaction.org. Wayne Paselli and Marty Irby are with me today. Gosh, guys, it's good to see it. It feels like it's been a long time since we've been together. Wayne is the president and founder of um, Animal Wellness Action. Marty is its executive director and chief lobbyist in D.C. So uh, that all said, first thing we like to do is go to Marty, who is on the Hill. And Marty, uh, why don't you give us the scoop on what's happening in D.C. these days for animals? Yes, sir. Thank you, Joe. And we appreciate you as always. Well, we've really had a busy spring so far, I guess, or first few months of the year, rather, uh, now that we are into April. And two of the bills that we've been really, really focused on getting co-sponsors for and moving are first the Big Cat Public Safety Act, H.R. 263, in the U.S. House of Representatives. Many of you might remember our episode from last year with Carol Baskin from Tiger King. She's been working with us as well as her husband, Howard, very closely on the issue. We've already gotten 155 co-sponsors on the bill this early in the game, as well as a raft of new Republicans that we've never had before from southeastern states like South Carolina, Alabama, Georgia, and Tennessee. We feel really great about the legislation. It passed the House back in December of last year. Uh, on what they call the suspension calendar with two-thirds of the chamber voting in support of it. Uh, But we didn't have time to get it through the Senate, so we're moving to try to get it passed early in the House this year. So that gives us plenty of time in this two-year Congress to get the bill done and signed into law and prevent these terrible cub-petting practices that we saw in Tiger King and that many of you have heard about and elimination of big cats and lions Uh, from private ownership, like we might have seen with Mike Tyson or others. So uh, we appreciate everyone's support on that bill, really pushing hard on that, as well as the Animal Cruelty Enforcement or ACE Act, H.R. 1016, that's been introduced in the House of Representatives by Congressman Joe Neguse, who's from Colorado, and David Joyce from Ohio. Uh, That bill would very simply create an animal cruelty crimes unit at the Department of Justice to better enforce the existing laws on the book that the books that we have worked to get enacted, like the Preventing Animal Cruelty and Torture Act, the Animal um, Cruelty Enforcement Act, would address the anti-cockfighting laws that are on the books, the Horse Protection Act, and others that have existed for quite some time. Wayne has been working really closely with the Department of Justice on this. We feel really good about it, and the Congress uh, seems to be building some momentum on this issue. Uh, We've got a couple of other bills that have been introduced. I know we'll talk about the Kangaroo Protection Act more in this episode, but the Preventing Future Pandemics Act has been introduced so far this Congress. The uh, Lead Endangers Animals Daily or Lead Act has been introduced already. The Prepared Act. And then last week, the Bear Protection Act. That's a signature animal wellness action piece of legislation that passed the U.S. Senate 20 years ago and would stop the trade in their gallbladders where their bile is utilized in traditional Chinese medicine and has been promoted most recently as a treatment for COVID-19 with no scientific basis behind that. So we're excited about the Bear Protection Act. Again, we've got a number of other bills that will be soon introduced in the House and the Senate. Uh, Wayne has uh, come up with most of these himself, original ideas, but the Mink Act, 
the uh, Pigs Act that deals with the gestation stalls that factory farm pork um, issue is related to, the Rome Act, which is the Rescuing Our American Mustangs Act, uh, a bill that we are reviving, the FDA Modernization Act, Greyhound Protection Act, Shark Fin Trade Elimination Act, the Pups Act, uh, anti-horse slaughter legislation that we've been working on for many years, uh, the Opportunities for Fairness and Farming Act, and the Pet Tax Act. So I know that's a lot to think about, but uh, we're steadily moving in the right direction, and there is a great selection and menu to choose from if you're out there listening and you want to get involved and take action on this legislation. Mark, Marty, you sound very enthusiastic when you talk about these issues in a way I don't normally perceive. Uh, uh, are you sensing great optimism among you and like-minded folks relative to the progress of these bills through through Congress? Well, I am, and it's um, a little refreshing to be working on some newer issues. You know, we've uh, worked on some of these issues for many, many years, especially the horse-related issues that I've been so steeped in. And so I'm excited about this new raft of legislation, especially the Big Cat Public Safety Act, the ACE Act, and the Mink Act. I think we can really do a lot with those and then uh, more on the international level, drive the conversation with the Kangaroo Protection Act. All right, good. And thank you, Marty. I appreciate that. You referred to the Kangaroo Protection Act. We did have an episode recently about that effort by Animal Wellness Action. Uh, and we have a guest today who is actually right now in Australia who has a great deal of observations, a great many observations and experience working with and being aware of those issues. That guest is the David Brooks, not to be confused with the New York Times columnist who came to the name later than our, our guest. Uh, he is an Australian poet, novelist, and short fiction writer, and essayist who has increasingly turned his attention to animal advocacy, writing extensively about animals and the suffering humans inflict upon them. The author has published four novels, four collections of short stories, and five collections of poetry. He is the author of The Grass Library, and his newest book, which we'll talk about uh, quite a bit, is called uh, Animal Dreams. So, Mr. The David Brooks, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here. I'm, I'm fascinated by what I've been hearing already. So. Well, I have the pleasure of working with two two great guys. So, and um, uh, having uh, had the opportunity to peruse uh, some of your your newest uh, book, uh, it's super super exciting for me to have you here with us. And and you may may not be as well known to uh, our listeners as as the New York David Brooks, but golly, sir, you're much better looking. I'm going to give that to you. I'm going to leave it where you. I'm going to leave it there. But, uh, don't want to get into any more trouble than I'm likely to get into already. But um, well, well, the way yeah, it sounds yeah. is your 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 advocacy for kangaroos uh, probably is not necessarily a a popular one uh, in Australia these days. I learned quite a bit about the issue in our episode. Uh, just the you know the two million of them killed every year for commercial purposes, making them the the number one uh, commercially slaughtered mammal. Uh, in the world, the hundreds of thousands of joeys who are necessarily legislatively mandated to be killed by blunt force trauma in their wake. Uh, it, it, it's brutal there. And just from our pre-show conversation, it doesn't sound like you have an amenable government relative to making progress for them. No, we we don't. And uh, I mean, I, I was saying just pre-show that uh, I've always thought of Australia as a wonderful free country, but 
when you look at it from animal, an animal perspective, and kangaroos are, are, are front and centre in a way because they they are Australia's icon, you know, um, and they are the largest free, that is to say, non-domesticated uh, mammal in Australia. Um, for them, it's more like a an authoritarian, a very nasty authoritarian regime. And um, one can spend two or three months working on kangaroo matters and so forth without really confronting the public animosity. But whenever there's some sort of um, stirring in terms of work to advocate for kangaroos, um, the government tends to get nasty in, in a number of different ways. And just just yesterday, we had our Minister for Agriculture um, s- stopping one step short of talking about us advocates as terrorists um, and, 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 and speaking about us as um, ingenuous and ill-informed, um, which I think is really very interesting. The, the, the principal advocates for kangaroos in the country are people who think about them every day and have been thinking about them every day for decades and um, and are probably far, far better informed than any of the people um, informing the government um, about them and certainly than any of the people in the government. Um, so uh, I, I, I'm a bit tired of being, and, and there's no point in being deeply insulted by the things that are said, but, but this gives you an indication of the unpopularity of, of I, I live in the mountains outside Sydney. Um, I'm only 100 kilometres from Sydney itself, um, and Sydney is on the east, on the, on, the, on the coast. If I go down the mountains on the other side onto the Western Plains, I'm essentially, um, at the further I drive, um, deeper and deeper into a country where the kangaroo is mythologised as a pest as in plague proportions uh, and so forth. And it's, it's even built into the language. We talk about mobs of kangaroos because that's a way of avoiding any encounter with a kangaroo as an individual. Um, and and, and um, as one drives further and further west of these mountains, um, one finds the kangaroo is 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 uh, almost automatically assumed um, and commonly assumed to be vermin. Interesting. Uh, if you were to drive down uh, towards Sydney and and end up at a Starbucks and just chat up some people sitting around you, where would you guess the majority of the public sentiment to be regarding kangaroo? Would they be more amenable to their their safety, their their promotion than folks on the western side? They would be a little bit more amenable, but but I think you'd have to drive pretty much towards what we call the inner west of Sydney before you felt a, a, a tangible change uh, in terms of sympathy toward the kangaroo. I think that uh, Western Sydney is still um, marginal in that in in that regard. You know, if I stopped at the first Starbucks 
as it were. We don't have Starbucks, not many Starbucks here, but if I stopped at the first McDonald's, um, I would also be likely to be pulling up uh, next to a, a, a truck with a with a, a rhubar or, or 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 even as sometimes happens here in in Katoomba at the top of the mountains, uh, a a, um, a truck with a with a brew light you know, for for hunting roos. Interesting. So, um, the the irony is that that um, there are very very few, there are fewer and fewer and fewer roos on the west side of the mountains. The east side of the mountains um, tend to be that they are not classified on the east side of the mountains. The coastal area is not classified as a kangaroo management area. So you can't hunt kangaroos there um, without a license. Um, the Department of, um, well, the National Parks and Wildlife Service will uh, give you a license to shoot kangaroos if you have property and you have kangaroos on your property and you 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 want the grass for yourself entirely. Um, uh, they'll give you a license very readily to shoot them, but but on the east coast and the east side of the mountains, it's not kangaroo management area. Um, on the west side of the mountains, it's it's almost well, it is entirely kangaroo management area. There's, there's I don't think there's an acre west of the mountains that isn't available one way or another um, for the kangaroo industry to have kangaroos shot there and so forth if they make the right arrangements with the property owners and so forth. So uh, west of the mountains, the kangaroos are, in certain parts of the state, are on the verge of regional extinction. There are three areas west of the mountains, three kangaroo management areas, that for the first time in the history of kangaroo management in this country are um, are, are, are moment, temporarily um, uh, kangaroo hunting is banned in those areas because the kangaroo population has fallen so dramatically that the kangaroo in those areas is on the verge of regional extinction. And I'm talking about areas uh, west of the mountains that um, I could name them, but there's not much point in that. Um, but I'm talking about areas that are the size of Belgium or the size of Switzerland. These are not small areas. I mean, Switzerland's a small country in, 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 in its size. Belgium's a small country in its size. But we're talking about areas of the state that are large enough to be countries of Europe. And the kangaroo in those areas, uh, the population has fallen so dramatically, um, owing in part to recent events, but in fact, it's been a systematic fall, and I think that the sudden collapse we've seen in the last couple of years that's taken these areas out of the picture in terms of kangaroo hunting, it, temporarily they're going to hunt them again there next year as soon as the, there's any sign of any kind of recovery in the population. Um, I think that the, the dramatic fall that we've seen recently um, is what I would call population collapse. You get a progressive decline to a certain point and then you'll get a sudden collapse. A tipping you, point. Yes, exactly. And I think we've, we've reached the tipping point in, in three of the 
of the 14 kangaroo management areas. And that's never happened before. But it's a, a sure sign of the desperate plight that kangaroos are in. Yeah. Wayne, I know that we have focused a lot on the Kangaroos Are Not Shoes campaign. Uh, we discussed a, a terrific short documentary on uh, their plight. 860,000 uh, kangaroo and wallaby uh, skins, pelts, uh, are, are sent out of the country of Australia every year, most heading to the EU, followed by the U.S. as, a, as an importer. Uh, are you seeing any momentum, Wayne, on our efforts to make this a bigger issue in the United States? I'm seeing our campaign as one that's enlivening the protectors of kangaroos all over the world. Uh, not only in the United States, where I think people recognize that kangaroos have been marketed as the icon of Australia, and I think people find it counterintuitive that Australia's government is persecuting them to this incredible extent, killing $2 million a year for the commercial kill, and then adding to that by enabling farmers and ranchers and others to kill them. So the total could be you know, as many as $5 million a year. It's a staggering amount of killing that humans meet out uh, toward these animals who've lived on the Australian continent for a million years. They preceded uh, all of the, uh, the, the aboriginals, uh, all of the, the uh, European, people of European descent. They evolved on the landscape, this notion that's being offered by the government that somehow kangaroos are self-destructive and they'll overpopulate and they'll all starve. And it's just an anti-ecological, anti-historical notion. I mean, these animals evolved uh, for that landscape. And yes, we have, we have changed that landscape in certain ways, but um, those, those changes have not fundamentally altered the ability of kangaroos to survive. And of course, you know, this is the very basis of the uh, of the argument, they say, well, they're they're abundant. Um, let's let's kill them. But why why do they really want to kill them? They want to kill them because these folks have introduced exotic animals to the to the range. They've they've introduced cattle and sheep, and they don't like the fact that kangaroos eat forage because that is forage that they think is some. You know, right for the ranchers to use for for their cattle and sheep, and we have similar debates in the United States with wild horses and with other animals in the West. And you know, really, what's what's shocking is that the government has been so unconstrained in this killing. As as we've said previously, this is the largest commercial slaughter of native wildlife species in the world. We don't allow anything like this in the United States, even though the U.S has a lot of demerits when it comes to its concern for animals. Uh, we did kill bison and other animals in the 19th century for commerce, and our present wildlife management system has been structured in a way to prevent these sorts of outcomes, that we don't allow commercial slaughter of our wildlife because we know how dangerous it is. We know when you attach commerce to killing that all the limits are off. And that is exactly what has happened in Australia. 
David, one of your one of the elements of your bio, um, and we can come back and, and talk more about the kangaroo issue, but one of the elements of your bio indicates that you have recently or within maybe the second or third part of your career as a writer become increasingly focused on animal welfare issues. Uh, talk about that change. What, what has uh, brought it about and where do you see it taking you? I don't know. Uh, that I can say very easily what's brought it about, or maybe I can I I, I can put it very easily. I mean, I I, um, I, I describe this in a, uh, my previous book, the the Grass Library. I talk about becoming a, a, a vegetarian and then thinking through the um, logic of that becoming a vegan almost immediately, um, and um, and this was this was ten or twelve. This was fifteen years ago, in fact. But um, almost from that time, um, thinking about uh, being vegan, and we, my wife and I, became vegan because of the animals. It wasn't uh, for our health or anything; it was for the animal. Um, that's why the first essay in my new book is called "The Smoking Vegetarian." I don't smoke anymore, but I wanted to make a basic point about um, uh, about being vegan as for the animals. You didn't you you didn't have to become vegan for your health, you know. And 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 if you become vegan for the animals, and it was a very very simple thing. It was just a realization one night as I was about about to put a piece of meat in my mouth. Um, I I just we stopped. We just stopped and stopped there and then, as it were, and um, and and uh, and and almost immediately began uh, paying attention to to uh, uh, protests about live export of sheep to the Middle East and live export of cattle to Indonesia and so forth, and um, and and bit by bit got more and more steeped in animal advocacy. Um, I had the good fortune of having a heart attack at the right moment, the good fortune of being of, of having an old disability finally diagnosed as multiple sclerosis. Uh, and I thought this was fantastic because I could get out of the university immediately. Uh, I could get a, I could even get a payout. And um, and I could spend the rest of my life doing what suddenly seemed what I had to do. And that was, it seemed like all of my previous writing, and there had been 30 years of previous writing, um, was just training to be able to write what needed to be written. So um, it seemed to me I just had to become a writer about animals. And so for progressively, and, and you have to learn to do that because I mean, the fascinating thing about writing about animals is you can't write in your normal ways in a lot, in a, in in a lot of senses, uh, and and that has something to do with the the essays in my new book. Uh, um, I started writing a lot of those essays because I didn't know enough about the subject, and as you write, you discover what you don't know. You, you set out to write about something and you realise how much you have to learn before you can really do that. And that's basically what's happened for in stages over, over, over 10 or 15 years now. 
one so, of the things. Well, I just I, I'm sorry. I was I didn't mean to interrupt. No, you. I, was no. just, I was just going to say that um, I think it's remarkable the way you you handled what many would consider career ending, you know, life life altering uh, in a in a bad way medical events to to see that as an opportunity to do something different and and maybe uh, even more for a general moral good that's um that's really an admirable approach uh, I, I just wanted to point that out i think that's heroic well <laughs> on one of those days when one of the sheep pushes me over and i'm lying flat in my face amongst the sheep poo um it doesn't feel very admirable or or, or tremendously um uh, uplifting um i'm just looking for something that can lift me up you know um uh, but Thank you, thank you for saying that, but um, but really, the, the what you find, I mean, rhetorically, I tend to put it that you know I discovered how animal I was. Um, I'm just one with them. I've got a voice. Uh, I speak the language of the people who of the species who are doing the destruction, um, and so. Uh, Simply, logically, there's nothing else to do. That's what yeah. you have to do. Yeah. I realize I'm speaking to converted people anyway who are doing exactly the same thing in their lives. So it's, well, I, it's, do think, I do think, David, it's, you know, the, you mentioned your wife and you had a similar response and you mm -hmm. together made this move. I think there's a big social aspect to living your lifestyle in a way that is friendly to animals. A lot of people meet resistance when they try to break from the norms and you see all sorts of family pressure, friend pressure, other forms of pressure. And of course, you know, we don't have access to as many foods. If you go out to, to dinner or elsewhere, I mean, your, your options are constrained. So it really takes resolve to overcome the objections of people, the people who try to point out little inconsistencies, the people who try to diminish animal welfare and living your life in a way that really reflects those sensibilities. So these social aspects of animal protection, I think are very important. We have a community that we, we need to support one another. And, and sounds like, you know, in your spouse, you, you have a supporter and vice versa. Well, I, I, I have a, a my spouse is a, a writer about animals as well, and she's she's just published a book as well, um, and uh, a book about animal grief, and uh, uh, and so we're we're actually a, an active team. I mean, we sort of smile about it some evenings uh, when we come in from our different areas of work, as it were. Um, that we're just a a kind of thinking factory or something here um and and we are very conscious of the uh, of having the privilege to be able to do that i mean i think it's um uh if you find that you can think all day and you can write full time um you are in a position to think through certain ideas a bit further than you might do if you had to live um a, a more complicated life i mean my 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 child is grown up and and so forth. Um, so so um, uh, I'm 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 freed of a lot of things in that way. We we have responsibility for animals, and they take a lot of 
uh, a lot of support work, but um, but they also, um, since it is work with animals, uh, that they're also providing you with ideas and and feedback that that that, that can't be gained in any other way. Yeah, absolutely. Well, your, your new book is uh, called Animal Dreams. It collects a lot of your essays about how humans think, dream, and write about other species. So it's not about animals and their dreams. It's about humans contemplate uh, at various psychological levels, you, you know, animals themselves, uh, how they have been featured in uh, international and uh, Australian literature. Uh, you examine them through the man from Snowy River, uh, the turn horse. Um, you talk about in this book, live animal exports, veganism, and the calling of native and non-native species. The, 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 the smoking vegetarian, uh, I thought was, was hilarious because I, I'm vegetarian, not quite vegan, uh, but you know, I'm I'm rather on the overweight side. I'm I'm just as likely to be seen with a a bag of, of peanut M and M's as I am broccoli, and it, and it's vexing to many people how uh, what a poor example of what they imagine a vegetarian uh, to be. So the notion of you getting called out by your friend at the dinner table for smoking and being a vegetarian, I thought was just a, a delightful uh scene so so thank you for in, including that uh as you look over this collection what are what are two or three that really have the most meaning for you personally that really state your heart on these issues well what th- that is a really really good question and and uh you only say something's a really good question if you have an answer for it well, that's why they pay me the big bucks here, um, you know, David, for asking those good thinking questions. Good. So, so you've earned your M and M's for today. But um, I, 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 I think there are. I, I will take three essays. The one about the man from Snowy River. That that is one of Australia's uh, most famous poems. It it it's almost an iconic poem for Australia. Um, and was written by someone who was a horseman, a poet who was a, also a horseman, and uh, and like so many Australians, this is a, a euphemism that I, I I take on in that essay. Um, love their horses, meaning they love horse racing, meaning they love abusing horses. Uh, they love horses for the money that the horses might represent. It's not really a love of horses. Um, if we loved our children the way we love our horses, we'd be in prison, you know, very, very quickly. Um, and so I, I, I take on The Man from Snowy River and I look at that poem from the horse's point of view. Um, that was an essay that taught me how to approach my previous life in a way because it was reading a poem upside down complete, from a completely different angle from the one that I, I might have taught it. So, I mean, you understand the point. It's really simple. Um, I looked at that poem from the horse's point of view, and from that point of view, it was a horrific poem. It was a poem about um, abuse, about uh, torture, about um, uh, human cruelty, um, and and uh, and the poem opened up to me like butter in terms of um, sorry margarine in terms of butter's um, good yeah yeah begin in butter terms, in terms of um, 
how to turn texts inside out and reveal the occluded, abusive animals in almost everything we write. Yeah. Um, you're 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 quoting the poem and and you're you're diving into, you know, the covered in blood from you know from from neck to to from front absolutely. to back. Uh, yeah, yeah. just yeah. yeah yeah yeah. As if as it and 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 of course in the process, the poet in that poem is making the horse a hero for basically allowing itself to be carved up by the stirrups of the rider as if it had any choice about it, as if the horse had any choice about it. So, um, yes, that uh, that essay, I would say, because, I mean, right now it's not just kangaroos that are being discussed in our own parliament um, in terms of massive culling and so forth. It's, it's our Brumbies as well. So you were talking a little bit earlier about your own Mustangs and 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 bills to protect them um, at this particular point in time, in front of the uh, New South Wales Parliament, um, there's a bill to reduce the population of mustangs in the uh, Snowy Mountains area of New South Wales um, by two thirds by shooting them from helicopters and leaving the bodies just to rot away. And, um, and, and, and so writing about an Australian poem and turning it inside out, ironically, you find you're writing about contemporary Australia, you're writing about what's happening here at the moment, and, and you are uh, trying to unpick the mind that does that. And I don't want to interrupt your train of thought on, on, on the other two essays that you were going to single out. But when I was reading uh, about the man from Snowy River in, in your book, I thought so much about the Kentucky Derby, which we reference from time to time uh, mm -hmm. in this show, which is arguably a day we have of our own where the entire country shuts down, or at least a large part of it, to get into this, this two-minute horse race. We didn't have it under normal circumstances last year because of COVID. And I sense to me what is almost a nauseating uh, level of enthusiasm for it. I probably go farther than than Marty or, or Wayne, you know, would individually on my reaction to this. Uh, maybe not too far at all, but it just they, I people just don't see it, do, do they, David? That that, no. that what is so much fun with with what we would have mint juleps and fancy hats and. $2 wagers really is an abhorrent exactly act for the animals. Yeah, exactly what we do in Australia. Um, one of the first things that, that my wife and I did um, when we became active, as it were, was to start organising um, parties on Melbourne Cup Day um, called Not the Cup and give people a place to go to be together um, in their resistance to the to, to the cup and uh, um, and because I, I my own university used to come to a stop when the Melbourne Cup ran and um, they literally closed the schools here on the day before yeah. uh, Derby to make it a three-day weekend for folks yeah 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 so um, and and people would go to these celebrations because it because they felt socially compelled to, and they 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 found it difficult to get through that period. 
So um, we started holding not the cuts. But um, to get back to the your question, the, the second essay uh, that I would single out is, is an essay about a photograph of a grieving kangaroo um, that went viral in uh, 2016. Um, uh, it, it was a photograph of a kangaroo holding, a, a male kangaroo holding a dying female and a joey beside beside them looking on and uh, and the grief in the kangaroo's face was just deeply moving and that photograph went viral right around the world um it, it was commented on in uh, uk newspapers and us newspapers um, chinese newspapers and within 24 hours it was hosed down by all sorts of experts around Australia who said that is not a grieving kangaroo, that is a kangaroo who's trying to mate with a dead, with the corpse of, 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 of a female, um, and, and, and uh, all sorts of, if you ask me, it was uh, the kangaroo industry of Australia desperately afraid that sudden, a sudden outbreak of sympathy for the kangaroo would make their work harder, and that uh, and and um, it took me three, four years to write that essay, trying to exonerate this male kangaroo who supposedly was doing nothing more than raping the female. I mean, the story that was presented. 24 hours after the photograph had had this immense impact um, was that, that he had either killed her in the process of raping her or um, she had died from other causes that he was raping her anyway. This sounds like something that would be aligned um, uh, philosophically with your wife's work on animal grief. Um, it would seem very germane to that, that we've, book. We've, we've worked together very much. Yes, I mean, I'm deeply indebted to... Her work on grief, um, and 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 uh, have talked about it in that essay. It took would a you long, mind, long time. Um, would you mind sharing her name and the title of her book? I'd like our listeners to be aware of that. Absolutely. Her book. Um, her name is 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 Taya T E Y A Taya Brooks, like my name. Uh, Prebac P R I B A C Taya Brooks Prebac, and her book is called Enter the Animal. And uh, it's on animal grief and spirituality. Right, thank um, you. Well, and, I just want to... And I, I think it's actually a very... It's a striking... I, look, I want people to go out and buy my book, obviously. But um, if they've got... A, if, 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 if my book's not available, then they should buy hers. Yeah, and um, Wayne, I'll go right to you. But I want to say that um, listeners who want to find David... Uh, David's book, uh, go to Animal Dreams, but put Brooks at the end of your search because uh, Barbara Kingsolver, one of our uh, you know popular writers here in the States and across the world, has a book called Animal Dreams. And, and if they don't put your name on it uh, at the end of that search, they may have difficulty finding it on Amazon or Barnes and Noble. So uh, I want to give that caveat to shoppers. Uh, Wayne, let me turn it over to you. Well, I just want to say what a story that is about the photograph and the, the completely different worldview represented by the response 
And I've been involved in animal welfare since the mid-1980s when I started an animal advocacy group as, a, as an undergraduate. And one of the big books of that time was by an ethologist called Donald Griffin, who wrote mm-hmm. about animal consciousness. And he was viewed uh, as, as advancing a heretical thesis that somehow animals had consciousness because the other worldview was that the animals are just blindly instinctual, that everything about animals is just a never-ending quest for mating opportunities and for food and for aggression between animals. And it was almost as if the animals were these evolutionary automatons, that it's all instinct, as if they had no feelings, that they have no emotions, that they don't play, that they don't feel scared, that they don't grieve. And this is the fallacy of our human view of non-human animals. And now when I enter the debate about kangaroos and I see this David Littlejohn character, the minister of agriculture, he's an agriculture minister talking about wildlife who basically views kangaroos as just livestock, you know, uh, that that are in the waiting and and competing with livestock as well as a commercial opportunity you know I, I remember reading an essay years ago about trophy hunters calling elephants just bulls and then the females were the cows they adopt the agricultural terminology to try to treat them into po- treat them as populations not as individuals and this is the human fallacy this is the antiquated worldview that we confront. And I think it's at the base of of Little John's thinking. It's the base of a lot of other people who just see animals as an economic opportunity in the waiting, or they see them as an impediment to their their other forms of commerce where they're exploiting animals. Like the cattlemen don't want the kangaroos because they eat forage. And uh, it, it's just an anti-scientific view as well, because we now know so much about animal intelligence and cognition and grief and other other capacities. I'm sorry. Go ahead, David. I'm sorry. No, no. I, I, I'm just, I was just going to say that um, kangaroos don't vote, and the farmers do. You know, the, the pastoralists do. Um, and... Uh, at this particular point in time, we've had a, I mean, it's a, it's a crucial time for the kangaroos and it's a desperate time for the kangaroos. Their population is, uh, has been reduced substantially by the drought and by this over hunting and, and so forth um, to a point, it's the lowest point in 12 years in terms of the can- kangaroo population. Um, but of course, the drought has just ended. We've had, uh, We've had almost 12 months of fairly consistent rain. The pastures are looking really, really green again. And uh, the the pastoralists who slaughtered their herds of sheep and, 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 and cattle sent them off to abattoirs because of the drought are now looking desperately to restock. So... Um, they're hyper aware of any other creature um, looking at any of their grass. Um, it, it's and 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 yet the kangaroos themselves are in a desperate plight already. Um, so I, I I just wanted to 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 make the point that um, because the kangaroos don't vote, because the animal people are gathered as it were 
east of the mountains and their votes impact there, but not in the vast area on the other side of the mountains. Um, we are in a kind of police state as far as animals go, and we can't look very readily, very quickly for legislative relief for the, for the kangaroo. And the work has to be done elsewhere or can be done most effectively from outside. And this is one of the reasons why I think your campaign at this particular point in time is absolutely crucial and has my absolute support. And there's no question about that. But I, I, I think that um, you might be able to do to use some leverage from outside that is greater than the leverage we can apply from inside. Well, and we're trying to stop the import of kangaroo parts into the United States. That's the choice of the United States. This Minister of Agriculture, David Littlejohn, and others are acting like we're trying to tell Australia what to do. No, we don't have any duty to take your kangaroo skins. If you exactly. want, if if you want to kill kangaroos, that's a matter for debate in your legislative bodies and in your states and other places. But we don't have this duty to take your animals as, as if Zimbabwe says, well, we want you to take the ivory that, that from the elephants that we slaughter, or we want you Canada. Uh, we, we want Canada. We want you in the United States to take the seal skins after we bludgeon the babies. I mean, the, we don't have a duty to do that. That's absurd. And, and our bill is narrow in that respect. I mean, I would do things differently than Australia in terms of its own domestic management of the kangaroos, but that's really not the issue. Uh, that yeah. that we're debating at this point. Yeah, yeah. And, and thanks, David. And and as we uh, get towards uh, the conclusion of our podcast, I want to make sure we talk about the the third essay you had indicated might be one of your your personals your personal well the, the, connect the, touchstones. The third essay is called the wound, and it goes to the heart of the issue. I say that there are two principal themes running through the book, and one is that. Uh, our abuse of animals, our occlusion of animals um, has gone on for so long that it's, it has its roots everywhere in our culture. And, um, and, and we have a, a, a massive work of undoing to winkle out these, these roots. You know, it's like dealing with a cancer that has metastased and metastase. And uh, so one of the themes of the book is this work of undoing that we have to engage in. But the other theme, and it's deeply related, is that we have all sorts of excuses for our psychological impairment, uh, our psychological wounds, our... Um, the philosophers and the psychoanalysts have talked about all sorts of um, approaches to this perception that we have a, a gap or a wound in us. Um, psychoanalysts will talk about, you know, eatable problems and the eatable process and, and so forth, though we are constructed on a, on a lack or something of that kind. Um, Karl Marx has his own explanation of it. Uh, philosophers have their explanation of it. Um, you can find it all the way through 
you know, almost any philosopher I can argue, making a fundamental point, amongst other things, about our separation from, from the animal and so forth. I talk about the possibility that this wound is our separation from the animal. It is our consciousness of the horror of what we do to animals. And it's, it's, it, it is driven so deeply down into the subconscious or the unconscious, we've, we've, we've actually grown scar tissue over it and the scar tissue is our idea of the eatable process or you know, we've got all sorts of uh, intellectual scar tissue over this deeper wound so that in a sense we have excuse wounds, we have kind of fake explanations for something that is much deeper and it's our separation from the animal. I really like and the way in your book you you reference non-human animals and human animals uh, to help people understand through your very word choice that we're all animals. Just we're we're a kind of animal. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And 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 would would you agree? I've said this before in this podcast, and it's a somewhat of a controversial statement among some of my friends who are evangelical and and you know very devoted to one faith, uh, you know in the Christian you know Judeo Christian tradition, and that is that probably the most deadly scripture relative to animals occurs very early on in in the book of Genesis when we we are told that we have dominion over animals, and and, and until we understand better what that may mean. We may never get to the point where we value sentience among our fellow animals as anything worthy of protecting. Well, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I talk about that phrase numerous times in the book, and I, I think anyone who does any kind of writing on animals, you know, confronts these terms. I, I, I would offer you one or your friends. I, 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 I won't talk about my own spiritual orientation or whatever, but I, I will offer them one little saving thought you know, when it comes to that phrase. Everything in their, in their version of the Bible, in anyone's version of the Bible, is translation. And uh, the only, we shouldn't think that the only word that we can use to translate what was actually intended there is dominion. We should actually think that um, we are being given, or we can interpret that as being given the role of uh, custodians, protectors, keepers, rather than abusers. And dominators. So, dominators. Yes, so dominators. Yes. Yes. That's right. Yeah. Um, uh, but yes, but enough. No, no, thank you. Wayne, uh, Marty, any final thoughts? Yeah, I just want to say it's it's great to to have intellectuals who are uh, really giving us insights about about our culture when it comes to animals and uh, immensely grateful to David for all of his work in this space and and putting his great talents to work uh, to enhance understanding about animals. I want to thank him also for speaking up for kangaroos. Uh, he and, and Jeffrey Mason, another acclaimed author, uh, wrote an essay that's been widely published about 
kangaroos and their consciousness and their their love of other kangaroos and their families and their fears and our ability to turn animals into things clears the way for us to do terrible things to them and when we see them as individuals when we see them as beings who have the same will to live that we have and who want to avoid pain and suffering then that's what changes behavior because we empathize with them and we at Animal Wellness Action and our sister organization, the Center for a Humane Economy, are really committed to doing our part to end this commercial slaughter of kangaroos. So stay tuned uh, to our campaign and join us in this campaign, and we'll continue to fraternize with great people like David Brooks on this issue. Hey, Jim, I, I just wanted to thank David as well. Really appreciate it. It's very insightful. I enjoyed this conversation. Um, and in reference to your last comment, Joe, during my one year in seminary, I learned not only is translation, but interpretation also a very important word yes. Uh, yes. with that dominion. But thank you, David. It was really wonderful talking with you. A great pleasure and uh, massive admiration for the work that you're doing. All right, David. Thank you very much. David is the author of the new book, uh, Animal Dreams. You can find it by searching Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever you get your books. Uh, Animal Dreams, you might want to add his last name there, Brooks, just to make sure you find um, uh, find it. Uh, and he has been talking to us today about his new collection of essays uh, compiled under that title. Thank you so much for listening to the Animal Wellness Podcast. Be sure to visit animalwellnessaction.org for all of our news and information and to sign up for our news alerts. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter, and we invite you to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, Spotify, all those good places. I've been your host, Joseph Grove, and we'll be back soon with another episode of the Animal Wellness Podcast.